You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Matthew chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Heavenly Father, we look to you, Father, we look to you this morning. We pray, Father, that, Lord, you may remove any blindness that would be perhaps upon our eyes, blindness uh, by way of familiarity. Father, some of these texts we're so familiar with, perhaps some of the things and nuggets that you have for us may, may, we may be blind of. Oh, Father, we pray that, Lord, you'd be pleased to open your word this morning to our hearts afresh. That, Father, you would speak to us, that we would see your glory, that we would see your person, that we would see you, O Father, and the lovely things that you have done in Christ Jesus. Teach us, O Lord, we pray. Show us, reveal to us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. This morning, I'd like to do things inductively, actually. What I'd really like to do is just begin by offering a brief explanation of all 12 verses that we looked at here this morning. It's a small enough pericope that we can do that. And then from there, I'd like to kind of show a little bit about how this particular text fits in the overall context of Matthew. I think that'll be something that's very important because we have a tendency at Christmas time to take this passage and kind of present it in isolation to the rest of Matthew's argument. And um, as we take a minute and we begin to see how uh, chapter 2 fits, at least verses 1 to 12 fit in the overall argument that Matthew here is arguing for, really helps us to see this passage in fresh light um, this morning. And from there, I'd like to take a look at the cast of characters that we have. Uh, We do have some characters in this text, and I would like to look at the cast of characters. And I think as we do this, uh, the application will become clearer and clearer to us. And I I offer this to you from time to time. Many of you know I do this from time to time. Uh, I do this so that you can, as I I take you through this this method, if you will, uh, 
I'm taking you really through the way I study Scripture, the way I study a particular passage. Why am I doing that? Because I, 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 I want to show you how, how, at least how I do it, and uh, perhaps will help you uh, as you study Scripture. So let's begin with verse 1. There we see after Jesus was born, uh, Jesus has already been, he's already, uh, Jesus has already stepped into time, space, and history. He's been born. Notice that there's a phrase right after the word born in most of your Bibles, born in Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, notice that phrase of Judea. That's a very important phrase. And I'll point something out to you about that. You'll notice that that phrase actually is repeated. If you look down to verse 5, uh, in Bethlehem of Judea, and if you look at verse 6, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Now you see that repetition there. Uh, when God speaks, He's not like preachers. Preachers have a tendency to babble. God doesn't babble. Uh, when we find and discover something being repeated over and over again, He's emphasizing something. What's being emphasized? That Jesus is born in Bethlehem, not just Bethlehem, but Bethlehem of Judea. Now, why is that important? Because, it's in, because we'll see here in a few minutes that that is where the Christ would be born, in the Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem, five miles south approximately of Jerusalem, uh, the city of David. Uh, not Bethlehem up in Galilee. There are other Bethlehems. Uh, just like I would imagine there's probably a lot of Chesters across this land. Uh, we distinguish this one because this is Chester, West Virginia. Uh, but if we just said Chester, we could be talking about a whole host of different places. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea, and here's a time frame. It's in the days of Herod the king. And for those of you who are really interested in, in dates and what have you, and some of you are, if you're interested in what date, what year it was when Jesus was born, uh, this gives us uh, at least a ballpark. We know that uh, King Herod died in 4 B.C., so uh, Jesus was obviously born prior to 4 B.C. Many scholars believe they, they suggest 5 or 6. Some would even suggest 7. So right in that, right in that ballpark. I, I don't think we can really be dogmatic about any particular year, but it would certainly be in the 5, 6, or 7 year period. Um, Herod is still reigning at the time of this, of this passage. Uh, the time frame is in the days of Herod the king. Herod is... A man-made king, he was made king in 40 B.C. by the Romans, and he is king of the land. And notice the word after king, at least in the ESV, the words behold, Greek word to do. When we don't use the word behold much. In fact, I would ask you this question, how many of you have used the word behold in any text messages recently? Uh, probably not. Uh, I'm guessing. Uh, maybe some of you have, you know, oh, lo and behold, maybe if you did, you would get the attention of whoever you were sending the text to. Maybe try it this week. It's supposed to get your attention. The word behold is supposed to get your Try it. It will. That's what it does. That's what it's supposed to do. It's, you're supposed to have something significant come after it, which we do here in our text. It says behold. Behold what? Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot of ink spilled on who these wise men were. In fact, you can go through the commentaries and, and there, there is a lot of ink spill, spilled on who these 
Uh, wise men were. Some suggest they come from Egypt, some suggest from India, some from Persia, some from Babylon. Uh, the fact of the matter is we don't know. We don't know who they were. Um, Christian, uh, or, or I should say Christmas tradition has embellished on this story quite a bit. Um, we, we, don't know who, we don't know who they were. Matthew doesn't tell us, and that actually is a key to really interpreting this. What does Matthew say? When Matthew, what does Matthew tell us? He tells us they came from the east, right? They came, they came from the east. So let's hold on to that thought for uh, at least for a little while. They come from the east to Jerusalem. Now, that, that might be something. If we lived in Jerusalem at the time and we've seen these characters coming in, we, we would be aware of the fact, okay, you guys aren't from around here. Uh, probably dressed a bit different. Probably talking a little bit funny. Um, we would recognize, okay, check that out. There's some characters from, from some other land. Okay, that would, that would get our attention. But the word behold in our text is not so much pointing to the fact that we've got some visitors from the east coming into Jerusalem. The word behold is really pointing to verse 2 and what they were saying. What were they saying? They were asking a question. Namely, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So they come to town and they're asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Yeah. Okay, as this begins to circulate around, um, we might begin to ask questions. How do you know that someone has been born who is king of the Jews? They give a strange answer. Notice what's said afterwards. They said, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. We saw his star when it rose. The astonishing thing about this is that these guys come into town not asking if Jesus has been born. They know Jesus has been born. They're quite convinced that he has been born. And they're the only ones in town who know that Jesus has been born. Now, how do they know this? Because the text tells us they saw his star. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over this one, his star. Okay, what exactly did they see? Did they see a mere natural phenomenon in the sky? Some take that position. There are some who take that position. Some of the early church fathers took that position. Uh, Kepler, who's the father of astronomy, took that position. Apparently, at 7 BC, there was a, an amazing... Um, uh, visual manifestation in the sky. I, I'm not an astronomer, so if there's any astronomers here, I'm going to be very clumsy on this one, but it goes something like this. I think it's Jupiter and Saturn aligned in such a way that it created this great, this great visible phenomenon. And Kepler and many others uh, since have taken the position or variations of that position that that's what they saw. Now, another quest, question quickly arises from that. Okay, if they saw that star in the sky, how would they conclude from that star or from whatever that is, how would they connect the dots, if you will, that that meant that Jesus has been born? How would they do that? That is mysterious, isn't it? It's very mysterious. 
Now, there's another interpretation of this. Another interpretation is the one I take. I mean, both are fine. The one that I take is that what they're seeing actually is a manifestation of God's glory. Kind of a Shekinah glory, if you will. Uh, what do I mean by Shekinah glory? Some of you are aware of that term when God leads Israel out of Egypt and He leads them in the wilderness. He manifests His presence by way of a what? In the daytime, it is what? cloud. At night, it's a pillar of fire. And we refer to that as the Shekinah glory. It's the glory cloud, if you will, that they're led by. And it seems to me, especially as we continue on, I think it'll become clear, it seems to me that this star is leading them. Like it's, le it's leading them. Now they say, I've talked to servicemen who've been over in, overseas, uh, uh, and one thing that they've said, I've never been there, I've never been in the Middle East, but one thing they've said is at night, the stars are like, they're like so visible, it's almost like you can reach out and touch them. So for sure, the, the, it's, it's not like being in the Pittsburgh area. In the Pittsburgh area, we rarely see any stars. All we really ever see is, well, clouds. So <laughs> pretty much what we see. And it does sometimes look like we could reach out and touch the clouds. Uh, as for the stars, they're buried up there somewhere. We don't see them. But it seems to me that it is it really my position. And this is my opinion. Take this as my opinion. Um, I take the position that what they're seeing is a is God manifesting His glory and leading them. Now, of course, as God is manifesting His glory, we also have the work and operation of the Holy Spirit leading them to, con to connect the dots. We're going to talk more about that here in a few minutes. But what we do know for sure is that they know that Jesus has been born and they are determined to see Him. For they say that they saw His star when it rose and they have come, in verse 2 at the end, They've come to worship Him. They've come to worship Him. And let me, you know, let me point something out there too, really in this text. We have really already in two verses, we have a child being born, which we looked at last, last week from Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Okay, a human baby, a human child is born. And here we have these, these fellas from the east coming to do what? To worship Him. Now, they're not reprimanded for worshiping Him, are they? In fact, quite frankly, there's a little bit of a danger in texts like this. Because we're kind of conditioned in this way that we, we want to gravitate to the wise men, don't we? I mean, who wants to be Herod? Anybody want to be Herod? And we don't want to be the religious leaders. We're going to talk about them in a few minutes. We don't want to be them either. So we gravitate towards the wise men. The wise men are commended in this passage. Why are they commended in this passage? Because they come. They seek Jesus. They seek Him. They're determined to find Him. And they're determined to worship Him. And they're commended for doing so. What does that tell us about Jesus? It tells us that He's also divine, doesn't it? He's God and He's man. He is truly Emmanuel. God is with us. Now, verse 3, word gets to Herod. When Herod the king heard this, he was happy. And he thought, 
you know what? Hey, I got something in common with this guy. I'm a king too. Hey, let's go meet up. Hey, you're a king. I'm a king. We're both kings. That's cool. We got so much in common. Right? Is that how it goes? No. No, that's not how it goes. The old adage, you know, in the Westerns, you know, the old Westerns when you had two gunslingers and they were, they're out on the street and they're looking at each other and one says to the other one, this town isn't big enough for the two of us. One of us has to go. It's more like that, isn't it? Herod is troubled. We're told that all Jerusalem is troubled with him. We may think that Jerusalem has a, is really having the same problem as Herod. That's a kind of a different matter that's going on with the people. Herod is a really an unstable character. Uh, we'll talk about that more here in a minute when we get to the cast of characters. But, but at any rate, Herod is pretty upset by this news. He's king. He's been king since 40 B.C. He wants to stay king. He's not very happy about this inquiry into he who has been born king of the Jews. Verse 4, he takes action. He assembles the chief priests and the scribes of the people and he inquires of them where the king, is that what it says? Where the king would be born? Notice what he does. He gathers the religious leaders up, the leading religious figures of the day. He gathers them to himself and he asks where what? The Christ. Isn't it interesting that Herod puts that together? That he who has been born king of the Jews is the Messiah, the Christos, the Christ. Now why is that? Because at this particular time, there was a high expectation of the Messiah. A high messianic expectation. We see this in John chapter 4, 30 years removed from this time, when Jesus meets up with a Samaritan at the well. One of the things that the Samaritan says to Jesus, I know Messiah is coming. There's this high anticipation right now that Messiah is coming. Herod connects these dots. Herod realizes that this is the Christ that the wise men are coming to see. Not simply just merely a rival king, but the Christ now, how do the religious leaders answer? Well, they tell him in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea. Where is the Christ to be born? In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then in verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly. When one of these kind of characters summon you and want to talk with you secretly, look out. Nothing good's coming of this. Nothing good is coming of this. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Now, what is Herod doing? He wants to know, okay, what, what am I looking for here? I know where to look. I need to look in Bethlehem. Who am I looking for? Am I looking for a one-year-old? Am I looking for a five-year-old? Am I looking for a ten-year-old? He doesn't want to come out. He's sly. This is the way the, the evil one works. He's sly. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to come out and just say, okay, you know, uh, how, approximately how old is this, would this child be? Instead, he, he, he kind of connects things. Okay, you said you saw his star. You know he's been born because you saw his star. Okay, how long ago did you see his star? And his logic seems to be, well, if you saw his star two years ago, then we're looking for a child that's two years or younger. If you saw the star... Six weeks ago, then we're looking for an infant. 
If you saw the star five years ago, well, then we're looking for a five-year-old or younger. Now, of course, we know that the wise men answered that question because of what follows after verse 13. Uh, uh, Herod, satisfied with his, his interview, he sends the, uh, the wise men or the magi, if you will, to Bethlehem, and he says, go search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Does Herod, does Herod have a desire to worship Jesus? Absolutely not. His desire is to destroy Jesus. And in verse 9, we see that after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 9 is why I take the position that I take. It seems to me, it looks like, it looks like this, this star-like appearance. It appears to me that God is manifesting Himself uh, in a star-like uh, uh, fashion. And he is leading the wise men where to uh, the house where uh, Jesus is. In verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And then in verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. That's a brief explanation of the event that has taken place, or I might say events that has taken place. How does this fit? How does this fit into, and that's a question I'm always asking. Sometimes we get the meaning of a passage by looking at how it fits in the overall argument. Well, what is Matthew's overall, overall argument? What is Matthew wanting to do? He's wanting to show that Jesus is the Christ. And he's doing other things, of course, but he wants to show that Jesus is the Messiah. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, how does Matthew start? He starts with a genealogy. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. What is, his, what is his agenda for this genealogy? He wants to show that Jesus is the son of David and that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Why is that important? Because the Messiah is promised. A promise is made to David that one of his sons will, will be on his throne forever. And Matthew wants to connect Jesus to that promise. But secondly, the promise of a son to Abraham. Now, we've been studying Genesis. We've, we've been plowing through Genesis. We'll, we'll begin on Genesis 18 when we return. But what have we been seeing over and over and over again in our study of Abraham's life? A promise of a child. Now, his promised child would be Isaac, but Isaac, as we have seen, is a type who points to Jesus, isn't he? He's a type who's pointing to Jesus. And there's a question I'm always asking when we're studying Genesis question I'm always asking. And the question is, where is Genesis 3.15? How many times have you heard me ask that question? So many times I might be irritating you with the question. I don't know. I hope not. But why do I ask that question? Because Genesis 3.15 is the first utterance of the gospel in all of the Bible. It's the promise of a son who will defeat Satan and liberate his people and return them back to where they can enjoy communion with God. That's the that's the proto-Yangelion. That is the first gospel utterance that we have in Scripture. So where is Genesis 3.15 in our text? You're allowed to ask that of the New Testament too, you know. We don't just ask that when we're studying Genesis. We can ask that when we're studying Matthew. Where's Genesis 3.15? First verse of Matthew. That's where it is. That's the first thing he wants to get off to us here. First order of business. There's Genesis 3.15. Namely, that Jesus is a fulfillment of these promises. 
And then if you go to chapter, or you st- still in chapter 1, you go to verse 18, in that particular passage, uh, here we know from the other gospel writers, from Luke, that, that uh, Mary goes off to her relatives and she comes back. And when she comes back, guess what? She's pregnant. What is Joseph supposed to think about this? What would you think? Fellas, you're engaged. Okay, your fiance goes off to her relatives for a while, a couple of months. She comes back and she is, she is pregnant. What are you going to think? Well, Joseph is thinking what all of us would be thinking. He's, he's reasoning in his mind, thinking about divorcing her quietly. And then an angel of the Lord appears to him, verse 20, in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What is Matthew doing again? He's showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, isn't he? And then, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And those who were here a couple of weeks ago say, I remember that. We studied that. Yes, we did. Isaiah 7, didn't we? And that whole thing with Ahaz. You remember that? And then we come to chapter 2, and and we have this passage that we've just read from verse 6, which is prophecy of Micah, which says that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem and that he would be a ruler of his people. And if you go to chapter chapter 2, verse 13, there the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream again, and he says says to Joseph, take the child and take his mother and flee to Egypt. Why? Because Herod's going to make an attempt to kill him. Go to Egypt. So they go, they depart, they go down to Egypt until they learn of of the death of Herod, and then they come back out of Egypt. And we are told in verse 15 that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Hosea 11, verse 1. And then as we continue to read, well, Herod, what a monster he is. He goes into Bethlehem and figures, I can't identify the child, so I'm going to kill them all, two years and younger. And of course, this creates such grief that we, in verse 18 or verse 17, we say this was fulfilled, this fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. But what's Matthew doing? He's connecting. He's making all of these prophetic connections to Jesus, isn't he? And how does our particular passage fit in that? It's one of those connections. That Jesus would be born in Bethlehem and that he would be a ruler of his people. Now, with all of that having said, let's take a look at the, what kind of characters, what, who are we dealing with here? Well, the first, the first is Jesus. It's always good to start with Jesus, isn't it? Start with Jesus. Let's start with Jesus. Well, our text starts with Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We've already said a lot about Jesus, but one thing I want to point out is in the question that the that the Magi or the wise men in their question, notice what they, notice what they ask. They say, where, do they say this? Do they say, where is he who has been born to become king of the Jews? That's not what they say, is it? The grammar's important here, isn't it? Grammar's always important. Where is he? Where, what's it, how's it read? How does it read? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? He's been born king. He hasn't born. Sometimes we'll say of people, oh, he was born to do this. 
And we're pointing to some gift that he or she may have. Oh, they were born to, to do this. They were born to aspire to be able to do something. Well, here, Jesus has already been born king. Can you imagine what that's doing to Herod? We'll, 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 we'll just make a contrast right now. We'll call him our second character. Imagine what this is doing to Herod. Herod realizes he wasn't. He was born to be a king, but he wasn't born king. He had quite a struggle becoming king. He struggled. If you read a little bit about him, I'm not an expert on Herod or Herod's biography, but I know enough about him to know that it was quite a struggle to become king. He became king in 40 BC, but he was made king by the Romans. Men placed him on the throne. Now, if men put him on the throne, men could take him back off the throne. He's a real anxious character. He's someone who loves being king. He loves being king so much that he actually slaughters his mother. He slaughters his wife. He slaughters two of his sons because he perceived that they were a threat to his throne. The Romans would say of Herod that it would be safer to be his sow than his son. Has anybody ever heard that before? It'd be, it's a play on words, actually. Julio and huyas. It's a play on two, two Greek words. One for, one for sow or pig and another one for son. It'd be safer to be his pig than to be his son. This is the kind of monster that Herod is. He wants to reign. Of course, we have the wise men. Who were the wise men? I think the best, the best, safest course for us to discern who the wise men were is to go to Daniel. And you remember, now some of you, I don't know if all of you were around when we studied Daniel, but when Daniel is, when Daniel is taken out of uh, Jerusalem and carried off to Babylon, he's recognized, him and his three friends are recognized for the gifts that they have. And he's brought into a whole cast of folks who attend to Nebuchadnezzar. And they're sometimes referred to as these magician types, if you will. And it is these types. Uh, I think that it's out of this caste that these wise men have come from. Uh, they've come from Babylon. Some will say they've come from, some say they come from Persia. Some say they come from Babylon. But I think if they originate in Babylon, I think it's safe to say that they would have, that their, maybe their labors would have continued on as the Medo-Persians took over Babylon. So I think that's the safest bet for us to say. But the thing about it is, understanding our text this morning, as I'm going to show, is not contingent on us understanding exactly who these folks were. Uh, we don't have to be that specific in order to get this, as we're going to see here in a few minutes. But one thing we can see about these wise men is they're determined to get to Jesus, aren't they? They're not asking if Jesus has been born. They know Jesus has been born. They make a long and arduous journey. If they came from if they came from Persia, they came from Iraq, they, they traveled 500 plus miles to, to be there. We have cars that go really fast. And most of us, if we're called upon to travel 500 miles, we recognize that is a journey. Even with our cars. Try it sometime on the back of a camel. Hey, sweetie, let's take the camel. Oh, I was hoping we'd take the Tahoe. No, we're taking the camel. I'm making a joke, but think about it. And they're traveling with all of this, all of this wealth. How dangerous that journey would be. Uh, tradition shows us, tells us that there were three of them. We don't know how many of them there were. Could have been a lot more than three. We don't know how many they were. There are three types of gifts that are given, and I think that's where the idea that there were three, each one gives gold, one gives frankincense, one gives myrrh. 
But that's not a, that's not a sound that's not sound logic. Uh, Tammy and I gave gifts to our grandchildren, and when we did this year, and to, to our children, when we did this year, we didn't. Tammy didn't hold one. And say, well, this one's for me, and I I held one. And said, well, this one's for me. Uh, the gifts that were given were from both of us, and everyone in this room did the same thing, didn't you? So to, det- to ascertain that there were only three of them from that is not very sound logic at all. Uh, nevertheless, that also is not a detail that's important for us to understand. What about the religious leaders? Uh, what about them? Verse 5 or verse 4, uh, the chief priests and scribes of the people. What's, what's the story with them? Well, these are, these are characters that they're the leading characters, the leading religious leaders of the day. Uh, they're, they're the ones, sometimes I'll say these are the guys in the costumes running around, probably. Uh, they know their Bibles. They know Micah 5 and verse 2, don't they? Where is he to be born? Well, they rattle off the answer. But there's something interesting about them that's often pointed out in this passage is that they make no effort really to go and check it out. I didn't put this together until we were reading Luke chapter 2 this morning. But you know that the shepherds, when the angels visit the shepherds, after the angels leave, what do the shepherds do? They say, maybe we ought to check this out. <laughs> Shepherds who were despised, they, they go to check it out, and they discover Jesus. And, okay, here, here we've got these, we've got this, uh, this probably was a large entourage of people. I can't imagine that these wise men traveled alone with all this wealth. They probably had an entourage. An entourage shows up. They're not asking if Jesus has been born. They're de- they know They're convinced. Wouldn't you think the religious leaders at least could have spared an intern to run down to Bethlehem and see what's going on? It's only five miles. These guys have probably traveled more than 500 miles. So what do we make of that? Well, I think by now we're starting to maybe see how we could apply to this. And and really when we begin to apply this, as I've already said, our, our tendency is going to be to want to gravitate towards the wise men, isn't it? I want to be a wise man. Well, that's cool. That, that is the best, that's the best option here. But is that how we're to understand? Is that how we're to study these passages? I'm going to suggest that it is not the way we want to study this passage. What we want to do with passages like this and narratives like this is we want to ask this question. Who is the star of the story? The star of the story is Jesus. The star of the story is God. What is the big import of this story? It's not what all of the the people are doing. It's what God is doing. What is God doing? What do we see God doing in this passage? There's a lot of things that we could say. I'm going to I'm going to I just want to point to by way of application. What do we see about God in this passage of scripture? We see for one, God cares about those who are outside of the covenant community. Because (laughs) they're the only ones in Jerusalem that know Jesus has been born, aren't they? And how did they come to know that? This event happens five miles south and no one knows anything about it except for these characters who probably traveled more than 500 miles. How do they know about it? God has revealed it to them. Why? Because He cares about them. 
And that's the best news for us. That is the best news for us. But also, it also challenges us, doesn't it? Because it's, it's easy. It's really easy to get, to get caught up in coming here on Sunday mornings and coming out on Wednesday nights and going through our thing. It's, it's, it's easy to become indifferent to the people around you or outside of the community of the church, isn't it? So we always need that lesson. Secondly, and I, this, this is just absolutely amazing. The second thing I'd like to, to point out is how God mysteriously leads people to Himself and Jesus. That's what He's doing, isn't it? I mean, we're trying to, if you, if you want to figure out what the star is, go right ahead and try and contribute to the ink that's been spilled on that one. It's mysterious. It's mysterious how God does this. We can't say dogmatically exactly how God did this. But here's what we can, let's keep the plain things, the main things. Here's something we know for sure. God has revealed himself to these wise men. And he has given them such a deep conviction and such a deep determination that they will not rest or stop till they've come to Jesus. And he has worked in such a way, and this is the way God works savingly. When God's working on your heart savingly like this, you don't come empty-handed either. What do I mean by that? They're not coming empty-handed. They're coming to offer their full adoration to Jesus. They're coming to offer their full adoration. Let's think about it for a minute. I was thinking about this application actually last night. And I was thinking, you know, thinking of my own story. And if we had time and we all got in a circle, we went around and we had time, it would be a wonderful thing to do sometime. It's just to sit and listen to everybody's story. We'd all have a different story. And it would be wonderful to listen to each other's story. And we have already listened to and part each other's story. But there's always a star in our story. For me, I'll tell you, I'll tell you who one of my stars was. It was an African-American bass player from, from Akron, Ohio. Now, why would I call him my star? Because he reflected the beauty of Jesus. He reflected the beauty of Jesus to me. He didn't really share the gospel with me. He just reflected the beauty of Jesus. We used to play blues together in our music store after hours. You've heard the story. And he would sometimes say things to me like, man, bad dude. That was his nickname for me. I used to be called bad dude. Man, bad dude. Not because he thought I was bad or anything. It was just his, it was an affectionate name for me. He'd say, man, bad dude. When are you going to come see me? When are you going to come to church? That's what he would say to me. He reflected so much of the glory of God, which is what the star is doing, isn't it? It's the glory of God. Now, God doesn't work that way independently of His Word. Of course, it was after I began to study His Word. But God uses both natural revelation and general revelation as He brings people to Christ. And we all, you look at the, you know, think about your story. There were people involved in your story, people who reflected the glory of the Lord in your life, most likely. That's most likely your story. And that's, that's, that actually should it really inspire us to go out and want to reflect the glory of God, that perhaps we, could be, perhaps we could be somewhat of a star, if you will, in the life of another person who might see something and reflected by God's glory in our lives and say, wow, what, 
I need to check that out. Huh? What is that saying to me? What is that doing? What is that leading me? Where is that taking me? You see how that works? And of course, I am of the stripe. I believe that the I believe that the wise men had the Hebrew scriptures in their hands as well. Why were they looking for a star? Passages like Numbers. Why would, how would they have the Hebrew scriptures? I believe they got them from the exile. When, when the Jews were exiled out of Jerusalem and taken to Babylon, they carried the scriptures with them. Nebuchadnezzar wanted the scriptures. He wanted to put those scriptures in the hands of his magicians so that they could study them. That's what they did. And as that was passed down and down, that's my, my position on this, that they had the scriptures. They read them. And they believed them. Some of us may still be searching. We may, maybe we haven't seen the star yet. Maybe we say, you know, I haven't seen the star yet, but I'm intrigued. Well, if you're intrigued, you've probably already seen something. If you're intrigued at all, you've seen something. Otherwise, why, would, why, are, you, why are you intrigued? Where can we find Jesus? We find Jesus in His Word, and He's really not very far from us, as Paul tells us, right? Three responses. As I look here, there's three responses. There's always a response, by the way, to the Gospel. There's always a response. There's no way to not respond to the Gospel. You're going to respond in, in really three ways. You're going to respond in hatred, as Herod does. The idea of a king... He hates that idea. Um, he rejects that idea. He hates it. That's a response. Another response is what I would call indifference because it seems to me that the religious leaders are, they got their own thing happening. And they're satisfied with their own thing. They don't really care to go down to Bethlehem and see if anything's really going on because they're quite frankly, they're, they're happy with their own thing. That's kind of indifference, isn't it? Indifference has been said to be a form of hatred, but let's make a distinction. There's hatred, there's indifference. And then uh, the, the people of Jerusalem, I'll leave that out for now because we don't have time to get into that. That's something a little bit different of what's going on with the people. But um, we have the, the response of the wise men. What are the response of the wise men? A determined conviction to find Jesus and when they find Him to worship Him. Those are the three responses. But I'm going to muddy that up a little bit, Okay. That sounds all real nice and neat, but our hearts aren't real nice and neat. We are really sophisticated creatures. And we actually have, if you're a believer this morning, you have all three of those things going on in your heart at the same time. We're really a mess, aren't we? Let me explain that and I'll close. If you're a believer, you've had, you, you, you can relate with the wise men. That's why you gravitate to the wise men. I want to be a wise man. Why? Because you have sought Jesus. He's revealed himself to you. He's given you a conviction that, that he is the Messiah, that he came, that he is God in the flesh, and, and all of that. You have a deep conviction of that. But does that conviction, does it go 100%, 24-7? You ever feel like maybe you're a little bit indifferent once in a while? I think indifference plays itself out when we struggle to read our Bibles or we struggle to pray, or we struggle to take on the means of grace. What's going on there? Kind of acting like the religious leaders. We don't want to make the five-mile journey south. Or what about Herod? Surely we're nothing like that, are we? Mm. What are we really doing every time we sin? 
You're telling Jesus, we don't want you ruling our heart. Isn't that what we're doing? It's to a ragtag bunch like that, like you and like me, that Jesus comes. Isn't it? Yeah, I wish it could be so neat that we could just be transformed into wise men 100% of the time, 24-7. But I'll be the first one to admit. Let me go first. I'll admit it. Hi, my name is Rick Anderson. I'm a sinner. I have a sneaking suspicion I'm in, I'm in plenty of company. But I also want to conclude Jesus loves you. He doesn't stop doing that. Just the same way He led these wise men, He's led you. He was working centuries before this event to lead these people to Jesus. He was doing the same thing for you and the same thing for me. Working centuries before to bring us to Himself and Jesus. God is with us. Heavenly Father, thank You, O Lord. Thank You, Father, for Your determination to make us Your people. Thank You, Father, for the work of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to open up our eyes, to desire You, to want to come to You, to cling to You, to never get out, give up till we have found You, for You're revealing Yourself to us, for giving us new hearts, putting a new disposition in our, in our hearts, in our lives, that we would no longer, we, we just can't live that same old way anymore. Though we fall into those patterns many times and we do backslide, but we can't stay there. It's all because of your grace, O oh Father. It's all because of your love. It's all because of what you've done. You are the star, not only of this story, but of our, each, every one of our stories. You are a star. You are a hero. You are a Savior. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.